0: When is the right time to divide? In our world, unity is often upheld as a, a good in and of itself, but I think everyone, when press, would say there, there are some times when you have to separate from others. One uh, scholar I heard recently in an interview said that um, <clears throat> our country is experiencing another great awakening right now. And he was referring to the, the movement that's sometimes called wokeness. He was saying this is a very moralistic movement. It's almost puritanical in its um, you know, care to divide from those who are insufficiently aware of certain ways of speaking and sensitivities to certain oppressed groups. And this, this scholar's argument, this is actually kind of a strange vestige of Christianity that we would, we would care so much about the downtrodden. It's an interesting argument, but whatever the case, it's clear that, again, we, we all find division points necessary. You can look back to, to those folks who, who endured World War II, and the ones that we look to as heroes are the ones who had the moral fortitude to divide from the Nazis in Germany. Who, said, who stood up and said, I, I won't go along with this. I'm going to stand against the evils that are being perpetrated. But then we know there are many who didn't divide. They didn't have that, that moral courage to do so. And when the moment came, they, they should have divided. They should have been seen the division was necessary, but, but they went along um, with, with the rest of the culture. Well, this morning we're going to see Jesus talk about division. I want to read this the first couple of verses of our passage. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I don't have the page number for you, but I can find it shortly. <clears throat> page 874. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to, bring, to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus says he came to give division. Now this is jarring, especially because Jesus contrasts it with peace. I mean, Luke has had a lot to say about Jesus and peace. When the angels proclaim Christ's work to the shepherds, they say, Peace on earth. When Jesus forgives the sinful woman in Luke 7, he proclaims to her, Peace, peace be with you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And when he sent out the disciples, he told them to proclaim peace in the towns that receive them. How can it be that this one who has proclaimed peace now says he comes to bring division? This morning we're going to look through these passages of Luke, and we're going to look at three ways, three kinds of division— That Christ came to bring first Christ came to divide the church from the world Christ came to divide the church from the world second Christ came to divide true religion from false or better the true gospel from false Gospels third Christ came to divide the humble from the proud So to look at this first point, Christ divides the church from the world, let's read Luke chapter 12, 49, down through Luke chapter 13, verse 9. Again, this is on page uh, 872 and 873. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you but rather division for from now on in one house there will be 5 divided against 3 against 2 uh, 3 against 2 and 2 against 3 they will be divided father against son and son against father mother against daughter and daughter against mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law he also said to the crowds when you see a cloud rising in the west you say at once a shower is coming and so it happens and when you see a south wind blowing you say there will be scorching heat and it happens You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny." There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not... You can cut it down. This is God's word. Thank you. Christ says he comes to divide. And he says specifically he's going to divide families. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus hates your family unity or your family peace. But these family relationships function as a really good example for what he's talking about because family was so important in Jewish culture and in ancient culture in general. These family bonds were thick and strong. You owed your family something. And to be without a family was to to be very vulnerable in a a dangerous world. To fail to meet those obligations, to be divided against your family, was a a great moral and social failure. And so Jesus uses these family relationships as a, a way to say that there's something coming with me that creates an even greater priority than your family bonds. There's something more foundational than family obligations. And that's your obligation to me, to repent and follow me, to to trust God by trusting me. Now, in our cultural context these family bonds may not make as big of an impact. I mean, we, we love our families, but uh, we can convert to Christianity in our context even if our family's not, and, and you might not receive much persecution. There may not be much cost. You can be a Christian with with paying relatively little social or relational cost. That's true here in America right now today. We could talk about ways that it's, it's getting worse and the cost is rising, but it it looks relatively minor here compared to Muslim and Hindu contexts where when a, a grown-up converts to Christianity, that they are, they are ostracized from their family. They may be threatened with death by members of their own family. You know, so I, I listened to an interview last year with a, a man whose own, whose own parents were, were seeking to kill him be, in, because of his conversion to Christianity in Afghanistan. So the, here, here is the cost of being divided from your family, right? It means that the divisions are so sharp that your life is at risk. This is the division between those who follow Christ and are submitted to Christ and those who are not. It's the division between the church and the world, one place that we can look to see this division within Luke is to go back to the the sinful woman. We've turned we go to her quite often cuz I think she's very important in Luke. She she comes to this dinner party that Jesus is attending at Simon the Pharisee's house. And when Jesus arrives there, he's given none of the normal accommodations, the social the social things of being his feet washed and hands washed and things. None of these things are offered to Jesus. He's treated rudely and he's not served at all by Simon. But this woman comes in who's notoriously sinful, and she begins to serve Jesus by washing his feet with her tears and drying him with her hair. As Jesus pronounces peace to the woman, he's making a division. He's dividing between this woman who knew her sins were great and received forgiveness from Christ and those who diminished their sins and so didn't think they needed anything from Christ, and didn't have any love for Christ. That table was a divided table in that moment. This is a fundamental division between the church and the world. We in the church are those who know we are sinful and come to Jesus for forgiveness of sin. The world are those who reject that idea. Even if they know they're sinful, they may think that there's Something, some other solution for sin. Their sin is minimized in their minds. The church is that group of people then who is seeking forgiveness and has found it through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The world are those who have not come to Christ for forgiveness. Another way to put this division between the church and the world is in terms of repentance. Those who repent and believe in Christ are saved but Jesus says repeatedly in this passage, we just read, that those who don't repent will perish. And Jesus uses these two tragedies that have happened in Jerusalem. In one case, Pilate has killed Jews, and he's committed this sacrilegious and gruesome act of, of mingling their, their blood with their sacrifices. A gruesome thing to do. And then he recites this other example of this tower in near Siloam that fell and killed some people. Now Jesus' conversation partners just kind of reading between the lines seem to believe that these tragedies must have happened to those people because those people were unusually sinful. They must have been lawbreakers of some kind. These victims, in other words, they had it coming. These tragedies aren't accidents. God brought these judgments on them because of their their unusual sin. Their sin was really bad and so they had a tower fall on them. But Jesus is saying that's, that's not the separation between the church and the world. The church is not a separation between sinners and non-sinners. It's not a separation between good people and bad people. The division is between those who are sinful and repent of their sin and those who don't. Jesus says that the lesson to learn from these tragedies is not that some people are especially bad and therefore God wants nothing to do with them. The lesson is that all people are sinful. All people need to repent. And those who repent will be saved. And only those, those who reject repentance, will perish. The division between the church and the world, then, is between sinners who repent and receive forgiveness and sinners who do not repent and receive God's judgment. Now, Jesus doesn't announce these divisions as a way to say to those outside that you're somehow untouchable. You know, you're unrepentant, I've written you off. Rather, the point of Jesus highlighting these divisions is rather to invite the world into the church. It's to invite the unrepentant to repentance. You see this in the parable of these two men going to the judge. The message here is that, yes, you've been accused but now is the time to be reconciled. There's, there's still time. You're walking to the judge, and when you get there, it's going to be bad news for you. The time is running out, but there's still time to repent and be reconciled. And you see this again in the parable of the fig tree. This fig tree had been planted there in the vineyard for three years and has produced no fruit. It's been a fruitless fig tree. And the owner of the vineyard comes and wants to cut it down. But the gardener or the vine dresser says, you know, basically, give it another year. I'll fertilize it, you know, make sure it's watered, and let's just see what happens. As parables go, it's pretty anticlimactic. You know, It ends with, let's put some manure on it and see. <clears throat> that's, that's not the most compelling storytelling. But if you think about it, why should this fig tree be allowed to live? Right? We see other places in the Gospels where fig trees are cursed for being fruitless. But in this case... This master has been patient with the fig tree and the call is for more patience with the hope that the fruitless fig tree will bear fruit. The vine dresser thinks that there's reason for hope. This means that that for those who find themselves in unrepentance outside, there's an opportunity to repent and be reconciled, to go from being fruitless to being fruitful. There's the hope that God can soften hard hearts. God can make the barren fruitful. So even as Jesus is repeatedly confronting Pharisees and those who oppose him in these passages, we should learn from the fact that he's not writing them off. He he in some places says that their house is forsaken as in Jerusalem, but he's holding out the hope that they might repent and become fruitful. And we know that some Pharisees did become followers of Christ, like the Apostle Paul. Jesus is saying to all of us, even if you've been fruitless and stubborn and unrepentant until now, you don't have to stay that way. And the time is now to repent. You notice as we read, there are lots of references to time, to knowing the seasons, to knowing what time it is. What what time is it? It's time to repent and be restored to the judge. His message is, stop putting it off. Stop pointing fingers at at others and their sin. Instead of being divided from God's people, become one of God's people. By faith in Jesus, instead of being divided, we can be saved. We can be welcomed into the fellowship of God. Is it the desire of your heart to be in fellowship with God? Or do you want to choose to continue putting him off, living for yourself, Jesus calls us here to repent, which is, you could say, is taking God's side against yourself and trusting that Jesus' death is for you. Jesus draws our attention to this first division as a way to call us to be reconciled, to repent, to be reconciled to God. So that's the first division we see here. The next division is that Christ divides the true and the false gospel Beginning in chapter 3, verse 10, we see Jesus returning to a synagogue. It's the first time he's been in a synagogue since chapter 6. So he's on this kind of pilgrimage from Galilee to Jerusalem, and now he's stopping off in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and once again he's going to heal someone on the Sabbath, and it's going to cause a stir. So let's read this passage about Jesus healing. Chapter three, I mean, chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Now, when he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which, to, in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And he said, to what shall I compare, compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was leavened. So as I said, Jesus is back here in the synagogue, presented with this opportunity to heal a woman. And here in Luke, the Pharisees continue, or the leaders of the Jews, continue looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. And so there's this heightened tension about what's going on here. But it's important to see that this woman was not just ill. It says she was bound by the spirit, a disabling spirit. And it's been going on for a long time. This was a a long-term problem. Like we can infer that none of the leaders of the Jews have been able to deliver her from this spirit. And you kind of wonder, did any of them try, care to try? Right? So Jesus says in verse 16 that she'd been bound, and then he pronounces freedom. He says, woman, you are freed from your disability, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. So this woman is in spiritual bondage with a physical manifestation. And Jesus shows mercy on her, and she, he frees her. And this is noteworthy because this, this is, again, why Jesus has come. He's come to set the captives at liberty, right? This woman is captive to the Spirit, and she's freed by Jesus, and she's healed. What I want you to see is that this is a pretty good image, a picture of what the gospel looks like. The gospel, when it's at work, Frees us from our spiritual bondage. The gospel is not about us in our worthiness or works. It's all about the grace and mercy of God to those who are helpless. It's not primarily about anything we do, or not about who we are. I mean, this this poor woman was likely seen by her society as somewhat useless. I mean, first she's a woman and has fewer. Rights and lesser legal status, but she's also a disabled woman. We can see that the rulers of the synagogue had little regard for her, but Jesus says salvation is for her. Jesus' gospel makes no distinction. It comes to all who need mercy. And Jesus provides mercy. You might even say the gospel is especially for people like this woman. People who have been brought low by life, who are of contrite and lowly spirit, as we've read a couple of times already today. And the, the two parables Jesus tacks onto this, you know, he says, therefore, and then tells these two parables of the kingdom, they're about the value of seemingly useless things, you know, or at least small things. So a tiny mustard seed can grow into something that is kind of tree-like, it's more like a big shrub. And then yeast, which is relatively small and insignificant, when added, it can, it can make this whole loaf grow and rise. Jesus wants people to see that this is what the kingdom of God and the gospel are like. It's about God's miraculous work, often working through what seems useless and neglected. The gospel turns this crippled woman into someone who glorifies God in a way that puts the synagogue leader to shame. The synagogue leader thought he was doing God's work by his fastidiousness to the Sabbath laws, but he wasn't glorifying God. But this woman, regarded by her society as useless, she's the one glorifying God here. When we look at the synagogue ruler more closely, we see that he's got a biblical justification. He seems to to quote Exodus in the Sabbath laws But Jesus is pointing out even your use of the law is wrong. The law allows people to care for their animals and to provide them water on the Lord's day. But you want to use the law to keep this woman and all these other people who are here to be healed in their misery. The synagogue's ruler's misapplication of the law reveals a deeper problem. He's proud and self-righteous. Perhaps he was like those others who were talking about the Tower of Siloam. That he believed that these sick people probably deserved their sickness. They hadn't attended to the law as scrupulously as he did. If they had, they wouldn't be sick. This is the false gospel. A gospel that's marked by pride, self-righteousness, legalism. This false gospel is all about our status and what we do. And the false gospel People see themselves as worthy enough for God. and In this context, the Jews thought that they deserved a place in God's kingdom because of their ethnic status. We don't have that problem, I don't think, but we might have some other reason why we believe we're worthy enough. We're we're good people. We've done good things. We've done good works. The false gospel uses God's word to keep people in bondage instead of pointing them to the grace and mercy of God. Jesus would have us ask, am I believing this false gospel, a gospel of my own works, my own righteousness? Does my knowledge of God's word lead me to rely all the more on the mercy of God? Or does my knowledge of God's word make me self-righteous, both in the way I treat myself and other people? The false gospel turns us back to ourselves, what we have done, how righteous we are. The true gospel throws us on the grace and mercy of God. Why did Jesus heal this woman? She didn't ask him to. It was all of his grace and mercy. He saw her in her distress, and he had compassion on her, and he showed her mercy. That's how the gospel works. It comes to us in our distress; it delivers us from sin and heals us. I think we see both of these two divisions: the gospel being the, the false gospel being divided from the true gospel, and the church and the world. In the in the next part of our reading, where Jesus calls people to enter by the narrow door. So let's read verses twenty two through the end of chapter thirteen. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, "Lord." Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The church and the world are divided, but not in the way that we might expect. Jesus laments over Jerusalem's stubbornness and says their house is forsaken. But those from east, west, north, and south will come and be saved. There will be many who, who think they've been pious, they've done acts of devotion to God. But they will be cast into hell. They'll be told by Christ, I never knew you. Where did you come from? But some who are last shall become first. The false gospel, which is all about these ostentatious acts of devotion, it it saves no one. It leads many to hell. But those who come through the narrow door, through Christ, they will be saved. In the background of all these statements is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He's going there to suffer and be killed. In the previous passage, we saw that there were these many Galileans who were killed And it's emphasized, again, that they were Galileans. Jesus is another Galilean who's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. It's almost as if Jesus is asking, am I also sinful? But his suffering, we know, is no sign of his sinfulness. It's a sign of his righteousness. And it's through his suffering that he saves. It's through Jesus crucified in Jerusalem that sinful people have hope of Reconciliation and restoration to God. Those who are saved are those who enter by this narrow door. Christ, the only way of salvation. And so here is the division between the church and the world. Those who come to Christ by faith and those who resist him. What do you think of this division? Does to say that the world and the church are divided in some way, does it it sound too judgy? Jesus spends a lot of the time in this passage telling crowds of people, many will not be saved. It doesn't doesn't seem like a very popular evangelistic strategy. But it's the love of Christ that motivates him to make these divisions clear. What's more unloving than to give people false assurance about their relationship with God? As a church, one reason for being careful about membership is to try to make this division clear. Not because we want to exclude anyone unnecessarily, but we want the world to know that the gospel saves and transforms people. We want them to know that doing great acts for Jesus may be well-intentioned, but lead you to hell. We want them to know that thinking fondly of Jesus doesn't necessarily save we want them to know that faith is what saves your good works don't save your your own sense of your personal worth doesn't save none of those things save but jesus saves and he saves those who have come to the end of themselves who know that they are sinners who need mercy that's the narrow door that all must enter and that's who jesus has come to save everyone who believes that message whether they're Jews or from the four winds, whether they're great and mighty leaders or whether they're hunched over women who've been abandoned. Jesus makes these divisions because he wants to save. He wants to call people out of their unrepentance into repentance. He wants to call them to himself through the narrow door. He wants us to see that repentance and faith in Christ's work is the only way to be saved. As if to put an exclamation point on all this, we have something of a replay of the themes of our passage in chapter 14. We see here that Christ divides the humble and the proud, and I I think he does this as a way to provide some tests for us. How do you know if I'm coming through the narrow way? How do you know if I'm self-righteous or humble, if I'm stubborn or repentant? So let's read these three um, encounters. We're going to first read the, the healing, and then we'll read some parable, one's a parable-like saying, and then some parables. So beginning verse fourteen, uh, chapter 14, verse 1 one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of the, of the ruler of the Pharisees they were watching him carefully and behold there was a man before him who had dropsy and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not but they remained silent then he took him and healed him and sent him away and he said to them which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out and they could not reply, <clears throat> reply to these things so again just the this similar replay of a healing on the Sabbath that silences his critics, right? His mercy shown to this man with dropsy. And now we come to the first test. The first test is this. Are you obsessed with your own honor? And we see this parable-like saying beginning in verse 7. Now he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." It sounds like Jesus is giving kind of like basic dinner etiquette tips. Here's how to, here's how to win and into people. Go take the lowest place first, and this, is, this will be your ticket to exaltation. But really at the core of this is this question. Are you obsessed with who you are and your own honor? You know, are you elbowing others out of the way to get what you think you deserve? And Jesus is saying this is what the proud and self-righteous do. They have an inflated sense of their own importance. Friends, brothers and sisters, if we are infected by that same sense, it's a sure sign that we have a diminished sense of our need for God's mercy. The punchline is simple and clear. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who are forgiven much serve much, like the woman back in Luke 7. A sense of self-importance and entitlement is a sign that you're believing the false gospel. And Christ warns you, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. The second test is this, what kind of company that you keep? What kind of company do you keep? We see this in verse 13. <clears throat> he said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you, get, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus is asking us, do you, do you only hang out with those who reflect well on you? In some way, you benefit from their company. You, know, you, can, you can very at least be assured they're going to invite you to their next cool party. Or maybe they'll give you, you their football tickets if you give them your baseball tickets. You know, do you only hang out with people that are fun and likable? Is your love conditioned on what you expect to receive in return? Jesus says when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. And he says that repayment will come at the resurrection. Jesus is making a very similar point to the one he made with money last week, that there's a way to use your money for eternity. There's also a way to use your relationships for eternity. He would ask you, does the way you pursue relationships, does it reflect Christ's own concern for sinners and outcasts? If your attitude towards others is proud and condescending, it may be a sign that you're believing a false gospel. A great sense of God's mercy should make us want to see others receive that mercy. Do we, we know the the sinful neighbor in our neighborhood well enough that they could hear the gospel from us? Will you be one who meets Jesus on the last day and who who touts your good works, only for him to say, Where did you come from? I never knew you. Finally, Jesus would ask, What's your response to God's grace? Picking up in verse 15. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So there are these who were called, who spurned the invitation. The time for the feast had come. Everything was now ready. It's time to, to rejoice and celebrate. And they all had excuses for why they couldn't come. One of the excuses is even biblical. There's these provisions in the law about if you you get married, you don't go to war, you don't do certain things. So he had this biblical concern. What about us? Have we come to God's table when He's invited us to come and receive mercy? Or have you come up with excuses? Have you said some version of "Not now, Lord"? First, let me go and start my career. First, let me go and explore these relationships. St. Augustine recounts in his Confessions of Prayer something like, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Is that your attitude to Christ's invitation? You know that repentance will require you to abandon some cherished sins and you don't want to abandon them yet. Christ warns here that None of these who were initially invited shall taste my banquet. He's come saying that the time has come. Do you know the seasons? The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. But you won't come. To delay repentance is to presume upon the patience and grace of God. And God is patient. But why are you so sure that you have so much time? No one knows when disaster will strike, right? The Tower of Siloam fell on those folks. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance, not to stubborn delay. Every time we resist God's gracious invitation to come and repent and receive mercy... We risk becoming these who were finally rejected from the banquet. The ultimate division that Jesus came to bring was to divide us from our sins. He wants us to see that clinging to sin leads to hell. It means facing the wrath of God forever. He tells us that not because he's mad at us, or because the truth doesn't care about your feelings. He tells us that because hell does not have to be our destiny. Christ has come to free us and deliver us from death. He's come to save and to forgive those who repent and believe. So the message of urgency in this passage is to come and be delivered from your sins. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that Jesus did come, that he came telling us the truth about ourselves. We see in his warnings to these Pharisees that we could easily go the same route. We know a lot. We have a lot of experience with your law and your ways. We could become self-righteous so easily. We could believe that you have set your love on us because we are worthy and good. Instead of knowing that we are poor and miserable, that we are totally dependent on your mercy. So Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to make the gospel clear, that you would help us to make it clear to the world of what it means to enter the narrow door and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.